This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Dayton Ward, author of a whole bunch of Star Trek novels, and you're listening to Warp 5 on Trek FM. to another episode of Warp 5. Today's a very special episode as we hit episode number 200 of the show, and we decided to do something special for you, but unfortunately, Patrick was not able to join us when we did this interview. Um, he was having um, some car troubles, so he was unable to make it for the interview that we had, but we do have a special uh, discussion for you with Judith and Garfield Reeves-Stevens. Now, primarily known in the Star Trek universe for their novels that they've written. Uh, they've written very, very many novels, a lot of really great novels. Uh, they've written, uh, I think it's ten novels now with William Shatner as well in what's come to be known as the Shatnerverse. Uh, they have written novels by themselves together uh, without William Shatner as well. Uh, but we primarily won't be focusing on their novels today in this interview. Uh, we're going to mostly discuss their work on season four of Star Trek Enterprise, because uh, they did some writing work on there. They were brought onto the team for the final season of the show. Uh, but we also talk about their novels. We talk about some of their other television work that they've done. Uh, so it's a very fascinating discussion. I hope you enjoy this very special episode of Warp 5, episode number 200. And joining us today, um, I'm very grateful and honored to have these two on because, you know, these are people whose uh, Star Trek books I've read for most of my life, ever since I was a, a young teenager, and they've done a lot to contribute to Trek and do some really creative and interesting topics. So I'm a little bit starstruck here to be talking with Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. Thank you so much for joining me, you guys. Well, well we're always intrigued when the word honored is used. <laughs> So I, I want to start out and let you know, ask you, where are you guys living right now? Because I'm a fellow Canuck. Well, we are. We We're are on Vancouver in... Island. You're on Vancouver Island. Where in Vancouver Island do you guys live? Right at the bottom. Staring at the ocean. Yes. And at the Olympic uh, Mountains. The Olympic Mountains. That's right. Of another country. Awesome. I love Vancouver Island. I lived in Nanaimo for about oh. a year when I was a teenager and, you know, it's just so beautiful out there. I lived in Northern BC in Prince George for oh, yes. a couple oh, of yeah. years. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's magnificent. It's, it's still beautiful. And now apparently we have grizzlies from the mainland 
at the very top of the island. So it's gotten even more interesting. How would they get there? Apparently they swam swam over because at the top of the island, it's much closer to the mainland. And Parks Canada said since they swam over, they're not to be removed. It's natural. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yes, well, uh, also, it it goes with the caveat, don't get out of your car to photograph them. I, yeah, absolutely. We were uh, we just came back from a trip. Uh, we were in a place called Waterton, which is in southern oh, sure. Alberta. Yes, mm-hmm. with the parks. Yeah. Yeah, and they had a we had a black bear cross the road right in front of us. And <laughs> definitely something you don't want to get out and look at too closely. When I was in Prince George, uh, we we were in a kind of a rural area of the city. It's a pretty small town as it is. But I, I was mowing my lawn one day, and I went to came around to put my my lawnmower in the garage and there was a black bear in my garage so i was pretty freaked out <laughs> it was no longer do. your garage <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah no that was the only experience i had with a black bear in in uh, I think the only is a good word <laughs> <laughs> the only and very grateful yeah. <laughs> awesome excellent well yeah it's it's pretty cool so uh you know there's not a lot of canadian people involved in searching I mean, we've got shatner we got nicole dubois you know, and there's there's a few other people here. Those are the big names, but uh, it's nice when Canada gets involved, hey? Yeah, A, a, a is a, right. A is right. A. <laughs> Excellent, right on. Um, well, we're going to be talking mostly about Star Trek Enterprise today and your guys' work there, but I, I'm going to ask you the question that you probably get asked a lot is, how did you guys become a writing duo together? Well, we were um, writing individually. We were writing individually, and then suddenly uh i guess i was more in language arts i was more in horror <laughs> and we just de- both decided we'd give science fiction to try together and star trek was the first stuff yes actually we, we the first thing we yeah. wrote together i wrote for on assignment for one of judy's projects yeah and then uh we wrote together a science and technology textbook series for kids that was used across canada and after spending three years traveling the country, teaching classes, dealing with ministries of education. <laughs> we needed a break. And, we and thought, we've been to New York and we'd seen a Star Trek film. And we thought, boy, we could write one of those, cocky that we were. And um, so one thing led to another and we found out how to submit to pocketbooks. And, and they, uh, I think we'd sent three outlines and a picked one. Yeah. And so Memory Prime became the first fiction we wrote yeah. together. And uh, we just kept going. And we just kept going. And then we realized we could write books like that and others free of the snow zone. And we went down to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we were then introduced to Star Trek in film. Right. That would pocket, we were, yeah. pocket uh, wanted to do behind the scenes books. And non-fiction. they were looking for people who were close to the studio and we were close to the studio. Mm-hmm. And that's when we went in. And I think... Uh, Definitely, and got a great introduction to the making when we did the making of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Because we did that all as if you were uh, learning how to write a television series. And we were into every single aspect of the production. And that was just like flies on the wall. And that was fun. Yeah. And that was uh, Rick Berman was incredibly generous and great. Mm-hmm. He, he, Called, we, we knew how important executive producers were at that point. We were working in television at the time, too. And uh, we wanted to get to meet him sort of on the first day of starting on this project. So we, you know, very meekly said, listen, if we could come in and just speak with him for 20 minutes and let him know what we're up to. <laughs> and so we went in to meet with Rick Berman the first time. And he said, I'm offended. How, how could you possibly think I'm only worth 20 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and then uh, we, we spoke to him for a while, and then he 
basically just opened up the the keys to the kingdom and said, "Go anywhere, ask anyone anything." And that that was that was tremendous just to see a show starting from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that that was tremendous just for us as writers as well as screenwriters. Yeah. And Michael Pillar was exactly the same. He mm-hmm. let us sit in yep. on I don't think we ever sat in on pitch meetings because that wouldn't have been proper, but we sat in on story development conferences and writers rooms and watched but, the whole thing go but together. But we never told anybody that we actually were scriptwriters. So uh, when we went to, to Enterprise they, they were kind of staggered because at that point we had a hundred produced scripts and, but nobody knew that we did anything but books. So uh, that, and uh, except for Mike's husband and, and Manny Cotto. Right. Well, no, man, yeah. I know when, when our agent called yeah. us and said that Manny Cotto had called him and asked if we had ever written any scripts because <laughs> right. Manny knew our books. That's right. Mm-hmm. Cause we were, uh, and those books were things like Federation and mm-hmm. because that covered 250 years in the saga, uh, it was hitting the themes that he wanted to hit in Enterprise. Mm. Why we went in and um, and joined the writing staff. Excellent, right on. So, like you, with the D Space Nine, that would have been what mid ninety two, late ninety two that you're talking about when you were called it was in ninety one, ninety two. I think it was ninety one, ninety two in there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when we met uh, Mike and Denise Akuda as well. And uh, and that that was as we said a really a wonderful introduction to how the writing process of track goes. So by the time mm-hmm. we hit Enterprise, we knew what they did. Mm-hmm. So at the time when you had got in a, on the D Space Nine production, had you written any television scripts at that time? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. yes. Yes, okay. we had. Yeah, we had uh, done a ton of animation. We'd run yeah. two writing rooms for uh, two animation series. And we wrote on Batman, the animated one for Warners, right. the dark noir one. Yeah. And uh, one of the first live action ones we wrote for was a show called Beyond Reality. Yeah. And uh, our first day on set on Enterprise, we met the director. <laughs> who was directing, I guess, Home, and uh, he had directed one of our first scripts in Beyond Reality from That's Canada. Right. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's pretty cool. So how would you say writing for animation would be different than writing for live action? Uh, animation, those scripts are really long, yeah. and you call out all the shots. There's no none of this, the dishes get up and dance. <laughs> you have to break it down shot by shot, and you don't do that oh, wow. in a live action script. Yeah. Yeah. For writing an animated script, it's like you're writing not for a director and actor as much as you're writing for the storyboard artist. Mm-hmm. So you're letting them know, draw this panel this way, draw that panel that way. And that's their starting point. And really good storyboard artists will then see the intent and make it even grander. We did on uh, uh, Batman, the animated series, we wrote the episode <laughs> that people love to reference, the one with Batman in a straitjacket in Arkham. Dreams in Darkness. And that that got the honor of being the the, the show Fox Animation or Warner's Animation was always running the problems with broadcast standards and practices uh, for Batman the animated series, and they would always get notes back. But the storyboards for Our Dreams in Darkness got the honor of being the first episode to be completely rejected That's by right. broadcast standards <laughs> and practices. And but of course it did go to screen. <laughs> and when we saw in LA, they did a contest. Or they had a writing, uh, an article that came up and said, what are the best ways that Batman's parents were killed? Oh, yes. And we were number two. 
You're awesome. I'm not familiar with uh, the Batman the Animated Series. I have uh, all the scores from La La Land Records, but I've never, never actually sat down and watched the show. Uh, it was just something that passed me by in my in my youth, even though I was a big Batman fan. Well, well, some, we... some of them are uh, Michael Reeves was writing for them, yeah. Len Wein, uh, some Paul really Dini. Paul Dini. Yeah. Great, all, great it was, stories. It was really a, a great, a great uh, assemblage mm-hmm. of writers in that one. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we went on to Phantom Twenty Forty and yep. ran that, mm-hmm. and we did um, uh, Flash Gordon as well. And then yep. we got into Action Man and GI Joe. Joe. And we wrote dialogue for GI Joe Talking oh, yeah. Doll. <laughs> That's right. Nice for the talk. How did that, how did that happen for a <laughs> doll like a toy run? We were uh, they were taking snippets of dialogue we had written from. Uh, Dollar versus Venom. Dollar versus Venom, which we did uh, as uh, had ninjas. As ninjas, yes, yes, yes that's right. But uh, yes, when we went off to we went to Rhode Island, we went to Providence. Providence, we, Rhode Island. Yes, and we had to go in under the eight foot foot. Eight oh foot no, high, it's like a fifteen foot Mr. Potato Mr. Head. Mr. Potato Head. Yes, that's right. And when we went in, the uh, everything was presented by Cobra Commander. Cobra Commander in a, in full costume. Mm-hmm. So Rick the, Berman never went that far with this. No, but the life of a science fiction writer is fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're kind of all over the place. Yeah. So a question then about the animated episodes then. So if you're kind of writing down everything that is to be seen and then the storyboard artists go from there, then did, could you explain what do you think the role is of a director on an animated episode then versus oh, for a regular oh, TV oh, show? Generally, there can be two directors on an animated show. One is director of animation and the other is voice director. And sometimes they're the same person uh, or the executive producer is more in charge of how the animation looks. But the, the voice director is the person who stands in the room with the actors, with their microphones and their scripts and uh, directs them as a movie director would. Uh, takes them into the scene, makes suggestions if he or she has to. Mm-hmm. Um, the animation director is someone who deals with the uh, the flow, the visual look, making sure you know the camera moves are right, uh, and the script do the right job with saying we should see this at this point because the animation director will say, well, no, we should be looking at this other thing. So what you're giving is you're giving one possible scenario, but they may they may alter it. As, mm-hmm. as they okay. do, you have to break it down. Yeah. It, it can't just be left as a, a like, as we said in like Beauty and the Beast. When I saw the script yeah. for that, it said the dishes get up and dance because for Disney, you didn't call it out. No, it didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, sort of our the style of animation that we were writing or the script format we were using is considered like the American um, animation style. And apparently, we were told it came out of the Hanna Barbera uh, shows of the '60s, because Hanna Barbera was doing the Flintstones and the Jetsons for uh, network television, and network executives couldn't read, or the th- idea, idea was they they couldn't read uh, an animated script um, at the at the time, and so the animators at Hanna Barbera, the people writing the scripts, would break down the action visually on the page so that they would be able to see it almost like an animatic. Right. And then that became a standard. We wrote some animated uh, episodes for Disney at the request of a friend. And, uh, (laughs) and it was interesting. Disney, you got to be a bit looser with the description because you know, they had real top notch animators at work. And if you were writing a Disney animated feature, you would just write that 
as you would a feature. Almost, almost like a live action one. Yeah, because they're they're going to determine yeah. what it looks like. But it does help. It does help even in live action because recently what we've been doing is an adaptation for Netflix and Universal uh, live action of a uh, Bruce Colville series for kids, which is science fiction, Aliens Ate My Homework. And uh, the first, uh, we did the first feature last year and it was shot and produced. And this year they're doing Alien Stole My Body, which is our second uh, sequel. And, and there'll be a third one likely next year. But it really helped the, our executive at Universal was really pleased that we had an animation background because it helps to break down the action for some of those things. Especially when you're working with a real tight budget. Yeah. You, uh, you can help. You can help with that budget that mm -hmm. way. That, that brings us to an enterprise story, actually. Oh, yes. We, um, when we were working, uh, we wrote the script of The Forge, and uh, Manny invited us into the production meeting. This was fourth season. And, yeah. uh, and of course, it had the Ceylon. And that, before we even arrived at Enterprise, everybody knew if we were going to be on Vulcan, we had to see a Ceylon. So oh, yes. we got the Ceylon in the Forge. And, um, so, and it came from the animation. Right, but we, we said to Manny when he told us, you know, I'm putting it the say lot, and we said to Manny, okay, we understand, tight budget, um, so we're going to have like three quick shots of a couple of seconds each, and he goes, yes. So in the script, we actually broke it down as on the say lot, it runs, on the say lot, it we does did it this. Like, like animation so they know exactly how much they were going to have to shoot and what it would look like. So we went into the production meeting, and then it was followed up by the special effects uh, meeting, <laughs> And the special effects artist showed us the storyboard for this, you know, two-minute Salot chase. And we were and, berated for going over budget. <laughs> and, and, and so we said, so, like, if, maybe if we just take this back to, like, three shots of a few seconds each, they said, yes, right back. So. We were grateful if we got a paw and a stick yeah. at that point. Yes. Awesome. Now... As a fan of Star Trek on a whole, with you bringing this up, I got to say that's a pretty amazing thing to have you guys write a say lot into Star Trek Enterprise because the animated series is quite often overlooked. And, you know, I personally love the animated series. And what we've got in, um, I'm drawing a blank as to the first episode there with the, the Guardian of the uh, on the Edge of Forever there, but we got a lot of. Vulcan influence, and that actually rippled through with your guys' involvement on Enterprise, as well as in the Star Trek 2009 movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 yeah, I think it, that just comes down to, you know, as, as, as more and more people became involved with Star Trek, and fans of the original show started writing for the next iteration of it, that... Mm -hmm. uh, and everybody was really familiar with all the iterations of Trek it just became part of the writing room. Yeah, the mythos of, of yeah. Star Trek started to feed into everything. And it was a Star Trek universe. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Now, I, got, I have to ask you guys about Observer Effect, because <laughs> Observer Effect is my favorite episode of Enterprise. Oh, wow. How nice. <laughs> but I got to add this on here, because I've said it so many times, and don't take this the wrong way, but it frustrates <laughs> me that it's the Organians that are in it. Oh, yes. Right, but right. I st it doesn't take away enough that it is still my favorite episode of the series. Despite, like I truly love, despite it. the Arganians. despite the Arganians, that's right. <laughs> yes, despite the Arganians. So yeah. I wanted to ask about the production and what the decision was to have the Arganians in there. Was this yeah. was it at some point we're like, okay, we got to throw the Arganians in season four because we're we're making all these references, or was that a choice that you guys made as the writers? No, that was a fixed element that we were told to use them. 
Yeah. The, okay. What happened there was everybody was really pleased with the forge. Uh, I think we surprised them with that because they had, didn't realize that we wrote scripts and then they read that and they said, Oh, this is, this actually works. And they, we got called in um, to meet with Manny and Brandon and they told us this story and they said that, you know, every season there's this one show where they have to make up the excesses of the budget overages in the first episodes. So they need a tight contained story. And what they call those are bottle shows and no guest stars all using existing locations. Right. And they and, and sets. And, and they said that one, and very few special effects, if any. And they said one thing they had found that worked is this type of story often works if our regular characters are possessed by something. Or, or some, something or happens. If, we just use them. Or if they're infected by something. But you we know? don't have to use an awful lot of special makeup. Right. And so we put both of those together. You know, they said, go away and think of that. So we put together, okay, infected and possessed. And <laughs> so we started talking about the story, and Manny said, and these uh, incorporeal, <laughs> non-corporeal non uh, aliens, yes. make them the Organians. Yes. So, and, and that that yeah. was our instruction, and so that's how we came up with the story. So the first the first treatment we turned in, we had the Organians and two of them, and they were Aleborn and Trefane. And we <laughs> until met, Rick until Rick looked at their names, <laughs> he said, "We are um, not having characters not having named, names. <laughs> in an episode of Enterprise." So they became number one and number two in the script. We were grateful mm -hmm. that we weren't doing with Captain Underpants. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because I don't know, for me, like, I guess this kind of leads to the next question that I have, because it's something that's come up a lot with Discovery as well. Um, but how would you differentiate the following terms? Easter eggs and fan service. Ah. Uh, that's a, that's I, a good I question. We, we tend not to think that way. Fan uh, service to us is something that if you're not a fan, you still notice it, and it's it slows down the story or confuses the story. An Easter egg is something; it's not necessary it's, to be noticed. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes, and sometimes it's indulgent, mm -hmm. and uh, and ours is just deliver a good story that that everybody would like to see. I, I, we very we, we Ron Moore yeah. to us was uh, an expert at putting in those Easter eggs that told, you know, knowledgeable fans, oh, we're in the hands of somebody who really knows what he's doing when it comes to Star Trek. But it was never anything that jumped out and yeah. confused it, people who weren't, you know, uh, deep if, knowledge if it's fans. It's done really well, but we, we don't tend to have our attention taken by that. No. Mm -hmm. We tend to mm -hmm. just go straight for our story right and and we put in and, lots of and, easter eggs and, on but, purpose but they're not easter eggs so much as what we're doing is we're drawing from we're yep. drawing from the star trek universe and mm -hmm. thinking boy this fits with this or this was never explained mm -hmm. we always mm -hmm. love those ones where where mm -hmm. something where uh television shows particularly are done at breakneck speed oh yes and frequently there are a lot of wonderful little loose ends left for the writers Oh yeah, <laughs> and and you can knit them up and make it look as if they were always intentional, uh, and that's that's fun. And I'm sure we've left a couple of loose threads of our own somewhere mm -hmm. that some other writer will come along and and fix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but that that to us is we tend to look upon it as a as a big integrated story, 
and it's all part of that universe. So whatever we draw from, we're drawing from it because we want we want to do it. But it's also there's affection for the material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can, I can tell that in your writing because I've written I haven't uh, read all of your books, but I've read probably most of them. And that's one thing that you guys have always done in your writing is you you take threads that have been left in the episodes and expanded on them. You know, some of the more fascinating ones, like the the book, uh, the sixth book in the Shatner trilogy. I think it was just called Preservers. Oh, yeah. um, you know, like there's some really great stuff in there, and and personally. You know, I'm a big reader of the novels. You guys can't see it here, but just to the left of me, like I've got every novel in published form Ooh. from Pocket Books for the Star Trek novels, and I'm going through and reading them all. I'd say I'm probably about halfway wow. um, for reading them all. But I personally, I think that reading the Star Trek novels made me a better Star Trek fan because while the novels are not canon, that's kind of what helps me with canon inconsistencies in the shows because I can kind of pick and choose which things are important mm -hmm. um, for, for continuity threads. Like for example, one of the greatest things in my opinion that came out of the novels was that the Andorians have four genders and while oh, that's yes, never sir. been, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And while that's never been confirmed on screen, no matter what happens on screen going forward, I will always have that in the back of my head. And that's something that always makes sense to me and something that I really love that's been in there, you know? So I, it helps me to say like, look, these are stories with the characters we love yeah. and having everything fit perfectly is not important as long as you've got a great story. That, yeah. That, yeah. I think that's a great attitude. We also love the diversity because it's a shared universe of writers and mm. each one of them had a slightly different view or has a slightly different view of the characters. And so they, they have followings of readers for them and their particular view of it. So it's not one dominating it. Mm. And, uh, and so that, that also gives you uh, a really different, different approach because all the writers approached it differently and, and they reflect the fans. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, I have two quick questions about the books because, again, I don't want to focus too, too much on the books here. But with your, I haven't read Memory Prime yet, but um, The Lights of Zatar is one of my favorite episodes of the original Star Trek. Oh, yes. So, yes. And I know that Memory Alpha uh, comes from that. So yeah. I want to ask your guys' opinions on The Lights of Zatar and how do you guys feel on this? Because I think it's a truly underrated, creepy episode that I truly love. Oh, we, we agree. We agree, yeah. That... We agree. <laughs> That I'm trying to remember that, that we had some discussion of that at the very beginning, working on that book. That we were actually, and people were saying, "I can't believe you're doing a sequel to the Lights <laughs> and Stage." Uh, and and that was and, that was one of the three uh, the three outlines that, that they picked from uh, that we gave them right. uh, for mm -hmm. our initial book. Mm -hmm. So they didn't mind that we were doing the Lights of Zetar. No, no. But no. Um, that was yes. it. And then, and then that was our. It was one of the things we were trying to do there was to explain why there was no AI yeah. in the original Star Trek. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and again, one of those things that could appear to be an omission, but we wanted it to say that it, no, that was deliberate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And then this is kind of just more of a comment and kind of the last thing here, but uh, I think one of the greatest crimes of the last decade is that we never got part two to Collision Course uh, because 
Honestly, oh. when I read that, I just read that last year, and I'm like, <laughs> this is what I wish 2009 would have been. So. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, we, yeah, we, we, you know, we, we do have a treatment for it. Yeah. Yes. I'm guessing that the reason why those didn't continue is because of the movies that came out. Yeah, as soon as, I, I as, soon as it, the it, movie, yeah. as soon as the new movie was announced that it would take place yeah. at the Academy, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. that was that was the end of that, even yeah. though it was two different timelines. It, it's still, mm-hmm. yeah, it would have been confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That looks a lot of fun. Uh, now, on writing in general, how do you guys write together? Do you go one chapter at a time? Does one of you handle the dialogue while one of you hands the, handles the exposition? No, or do you do so everything you, together? We write every other word, and yes. then with Bill, it's every third word. Well, but... the thing is, with the with with writing, it's always funny because people come up to us and say, well, we think you do the characters, and we think someone else does the action. So to, and, you know, uh, it's a third voice. When we were first mm-hmm. writing, uh, we had a series called The Chronicles of Galen Sword, and it took us three years on that one mm-hmm. to come up with our third voice. Yeah. Because each one of us is a different writer, a different style mm-hmm. slightly, but together we're a third style. Mm-hmm. And and it's seamless because we go back and forth so much. No, You would never be able to pick out what came from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that doesn't know everybody's different, mm-hmm. but ours is it's a third voice. Years ago on Amazon, you could they had a, a tool where you could um, rate the readability of a book, and it would give it a complexity score. And, uh, and we found it fascinating that our military techno thrillers had the highest rating. They were like, I, don't, I forget how the scale worked, you know, 1 to 30, but we were at 28 or 29 for the military techno thrillers for our... Star Trek books, we had another rating. For our Star Trek books with Bill, because we, we had a third rating. Yeah. And then for our science fiction, our fantasy stuff, yeah. Galen Sword and that, we had a completely different so one. So each one of them gets a unique mm-hmm. a unique mm-hmm. style, uh, just just in terms of the way the... Sometimes it's just that the type of story dictates the way you write it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, but for us, we're, we're a seamless... Mm-hmm. And and what that comes down to is just constant rewriting. Well, constant rewriting, and also it's it's story all the way down. So when we start off, mm-hmm. we 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 work a story up to a certain point before we even start writing, and it's just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. What do you think your primary influence was when you guys came on to the series in season four of Star Trek Enterprise? I think it was exactly what Manny wanted it to be, which was mm-hmm. the original series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How it all started yeah. and how it all started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, would you were you helping to guide which topics were chosen and which episodes and th- plot threads would be uh, shown on screen as a prequel? Not, not really. No, Manny um, had a very clear idea of his arcs. Yeah, and he had a board up uh, in his office where he put things that uh, he, he wanted to see that that he wanted mm-hmm. to achieve in that first season, and then. We, ne- uh, we never got to the floating city. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The untold yeah. stories. Yeah. Uh, we end with uh, our uh, the guy in the next office. Uh, Andre? Andre no, Barman? Well, he was in one office and Alan. Oh, Alan Brenner. Alan Brenner. Alan Brenner. We developed a, f- yeah. a really fun story that would be the, um, the, the, the fake Earth City where they were training all the Gary Sevens. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> they were just what? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, they were 
there were many, many a wonderful tale that was never, yeah. you know. It was going to be like Gary Five yeah. or oh, something. Yeah. But, but it all ended in, in season four. Yeah. Isis was going to be in it. Oh, yeah. Oh man, that's awesome! Yeah. I've never heard that one. I've heard of a few like people talking about how they wanted it to get into the Romulan War arc, you know, and having a boomer episodes and stuff like that. But I hadn't heard this one. Before. You know, ours are more fanciful. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> no, that was yeah, that's that's fun. But um, you know, that just it would have been fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Had you guys been watching Enterprise up to the point that you'd been hired? Oh yes. Oh sure, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. I like to say the moment in the pilot when <laughs> when Archer ran across that snowy rooftop with, with a gun in each hand. They had me. They had <laughs> me. That was it. And and the other thing we really liked about the pilot, because we could see how it was starting out, was that the Vulcans were not the good guys. And that gave us a whole new sort of way of looking at it, which we got to do in the forge. Right. Because for us that was that was perfect yeah. Star Trek. Because in the original series, the Klingons are the bad guys. In the next generation, they're starting to become our friends. But and we love the untold stories. Yeah. And it's always those mm-hmm. stories from around the corner. Yep. Mm-hmm. Things that, that you, you're sure something's going on around that corner, but you haven't seen it. And that, that's also the ones we like to tell. And when you see the Vulcans being the bad guys in the pilot and, you know, trying to Suddenly, stomp humans down. It's a new game. And you know that. Oh, over the next seven years, we're going to find out how they became our friends. But it was only four. It was only four. Mm-hmm. But your, the Vulcan trilogy, the the Vulcan trilogy from season four, basically kind of tied that plot thread up and explained mm-hmm. why they had been changed from the introduction in Broken Bow. Yes, and and that was sort of that was I one think of the. Manny at that point was trying to get as much as he could get in. Yeah, that was yeah. that was actually on the uh, the board. He yeah. had a card that said the Vulcan Reformation. Yep. And uh, and that's what he turned us loose on, and yep. that was great. Mm-hmm. So a trilogy of episodes like that, that was pretty rare in Star Trek. The only time previous to that that we'd had a trilogy was in early D Space Nine Season 2. So mm-hmm. with you guys only writing one of the episodes, how closely were you working with the other two? And did you was it kind of like all of you guys wrote all three together and you just no. divided the credits up? Or no. were you given, okay, this has to happen in Episode 1, this has to happen in Episode 2, this has to happen in Episode 3? We're on that one. Yeah, for uh, the Forge, we so were at the front. We were at the and, front, and then they we were in the middle on another one and everything. Right. But that was Manny doing these twos and threes to tell an extended story. So he would have mm-hmm. an idea for the for the full arc, but then the writers were allowed to work them out. Yeah. And you the, worked them out if it was your episode. Right. And I remember for us on the Forge... Gosh, we'd when, only been in there like... like Two days and well, we were in there right. blocking it out but instantly. When I guess it was Mike Sussman doing the second episode, and then yeah. Manny would say, Can you just do this at the end to help set something else up? So and he would that have an fine. oversight on it. And then when we yeah. were working on what was it, what the one mean? with the Romulan? United. We, United. Yeah. We asked Manny if he could make a change to the. Uh, ending of his episode, and then we took something out of ours and put it into into uh, Mike's. Yeah, about how the yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, at that point, there could be some adjustment, but mm-hmm. um, that that whole idea of doing 
that that was a clever way to hit a bigger story mm -hmm. uh, that Manny came up with. Now, apparently the thinking behind it, we were told, was that, well, by making uh, three episodes based in the same place, you save money on the <laughs> set construction. And, of course, it never worked out that way. However, it was a nice thought. Mm-hmm. Because I've been listening to audio commentaries for Game of Thrones, and they'll mention sometimes like this was this was actually filmed for this episode, and they moved it to this episode, and mm -hmm. you know. So I was wondering if anything like that may have happened with the writing for uh, for a trilogy like that. Not not, not the not, ones we know. Not, not the ones we know of. And, and Game of Thrones had such a oh my goodness, they, but so their, their cast was so split up, you could do that where the storylines yeah. didn't intersect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At what point in season four did you guys know that this was going to be the end? When the fruit basket disappeared. <laughs> seriously. The, not seriously. We had a $25 fruit basket. $25 a day. $25 a day that came to the writer's room. And when that disappeared, we knew the writing was on the wall. They were saving $125 right. a week. With that. It wasn't even a basket. It was like no. a bowl. And it had a couple of bananas, some apples. And we knew we were doomed. They kept, they kept sending us the bagels, though. That's right. So we didn't have to turn on each other. Do you know what episode that was? What where they were filming when that happened? Uh, oh, that had to be before Christmas. Was it? No, it was. Wasn't it? It was close to. It was close to. It, yeah. I, I, I'm certainly the higher up you were in the chain, you, the more likely you knew the dates. Yeah. Uh, but for us, it was focused on the food. So with these are the voyages then wrapping it up, I'm like, I remember being a fan of the show and watching it and I had heard rumors of what that last episode was going to be. I wasn't really involved with Trek fandom at the time, but I know that when these are the voyages aired the first time as, as a fan, I was disappointed with it. I'm like, Oh, it left me with an empty feeling as the end because I knew there was going to be a two hour finale and it was Terra prime. And these are the voyages that were, that were a two hour slot. So I was kind of a little bit like, what's going on here when the last episode had had aired? And Phantom over time has created this great debate over this last episode and whether or not they want it to continue in fandom, or in canon, let me rephrase that. Mm -hmm. And while I consider it, whatever's on screen is canon, and these are the things that happened. Yeah. Um, what's it like working on the series and having this almost next generation episode as the final episode to this this series? Uh, our well, perspective, of course, was we were sitting in the bleachers for that one sort of thing. <laughs> I was wearing something that Gates McFadden had. Right. And what were you? What were you dressed as? Uh, sausage. I was in a sausage casing <laughs> uniform. Yes, that's right. You know, we I, were we were sitting watching this. It had kind of a surreal feeling. Yeah, it was it, Jonathan Frakes down there, and yeah, it, that, it was pretty interesting. I, I think the way we looked at it. But Terra Prime ended the, you know, ended the Enterprise right. aspect of it, and the other one ended... And it, that, that era of Star Trek. Yeah, Rick and Brennan's mm -hmm. era of, of doing the whole, the whole shows, all the shows, that was, that was their ending. And, and to and, us but, it made perfect sense to go back. Enterprise ended with Terra Prime. Yeah. And, and then that era, that whatever you want to call it, the golden age of televised Star Trek, um, that began with encountered Farpoint, then ended with these are the voyages, and it's, it's, it's yeah. somehow that that seemed right to us. Yeah, we we weren't really caught up in mm -hmm. in any controversies. Uh, okay. We were more just trying to fit into our costumes. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but we understand what it was like for the yeah. uh, for the actors who had. I mean, we watched Obje um, Observer Effect recently again, and just 
how wonderful it was that those actors, that quality, that dedication, mm -hmm. bought into their characters so perfectly. And after four seasons, they knew those characters. And so, it was such a shame that we weren't going to see them any longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and and so any ending any ending of their arcs would feel dramatic, yeah, yeah. I think, mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you guys read any of the novels that continued on the Enterprise line? No. No. <laughs> we, we, we barely keep up with all the science fiction stuff that we're on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They've done some really great stuff, and uh, I know you guys are very busy, but uh, they've done some great stuff, and they did they did awesome. an honor to the show, and they, they definitely kept the line going with some great books. Uh, oh, that's and, and that's the nice part, too, when you have this big universe in various media where you can mm -hmm. do it, uh, can do that, so that it, it isn't lost and it's not gone. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it is nice to be able to continue the characters in the books. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to Star Trek, you guys have written some other tie-in fiction for Alien Nation and Star Wars. Is tie-in fiction basically tie-in fiction and it's the process of writing it is all the same? Or was there any differences between writing Star Trek tie-in versus some of these other series? Well, well <laughs> Alien Nation, that was fun because... We, we, we got we, roped we, into that. But, but to, uh, for Alien Nation, yeah. uh, the neat part on that one was that what we wrote down is that five years ago... In the, in the Mojave Desert, Desert, you know, suddenly because they didn't have a Bible. And so we created what happened before the this series even started. But that the way the way that got done was our uh, Kevin Ryan, our Star Trek editor at the time, he would phone us up and we'd talk about the books we had going in that. And then he said, hey, have you been watching Alien Nation? And we said, sure. And <laughs> so every time we spoke with Kevin about Sunny Star Trek, he said, and that Alien Nation episode. And we just got more and more enthused. And then he said, okay, how about we're, we're launching a line. And he had this plan from the beginning. They licensed the rights. They were launching a line of Alien Nation books based on the television movies that had been set up uh, and, never, and never made at that point. And he said, and we want you to tell the prequel, you know, what and, happened in the desert. And so we said, so what happened in the desert? And he said, but we don't know. We want you to tell us. Yeah. And so, uh, awesome. we, we knew the show inside out because we've been watching it. And so that was, that was a lot of fun, actually. Fans wrote that. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and then as and it Ken turned Johnson. and Ken Johnson, and it, it turned out then that um, they realized they shouldn't have canceled the show and all those television movies got made after yeah, the fact. Yeah, mm -hmm. after the fact. And what's fascinating is because they did them one a year, you can see the evolution of cell phone technology. Within them. Because in, I think, the first yeah. in the Alien Nation series, if, if Sykes had to call in, they would stop at a phone booth. They would make a phone call. And then in the first television movie, he's got a huge brick. Did he have the brick? Yep. Yeah. And then the next one, he's got a big fat phone that flips. <laughs> it's It's... Lots of fun. We made a joke here on the podcast because we actually got to interview both Gary Graham and Eric Pierpoint because oh, both of them were in Enterprise, right? Yeah. So yeah. we made a joke that we were turning into the Alien Nation podcast. <laughs> uh, Gary, Gary is oh, wonderful. Oh, yeah. um, boy, we had a lot of fun talking to him. And then when Eric was uh, cast for, was it Tara Crum? Uh, I think he he was in Affliction and Divergence first. It was Divergence. Yeah, it was Divergence. Yeah, yeah and we made, I'm, yeah. he was filming late at night. We made sure to stay late on the lot to go up and talk to him because yeah. uh, Alien Nation was a tremendous show. Yep. 
Excellent. Well, we've got a couple of questions here from some listeners in our group, the Babel Conference, and on Twitter. And uh, Justin Ozer says, I've read that you guys worked on a Colonel Green episode that didn't end up going forward. What can you tell us about that episode? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. You know, that, that hold it. That brings it all back. That's why we had the meeting with Manny and Brandon about the observer effect. Do the low budget one. Yes. Because we pitched a we story pitched to story. Manny. And he yeah. said, yeah, right up. And we wrote the treatment. Yeah. And turned in the treatment. Oh, man. And it was Colonel Green. And it was, yeah, it was yeah. Colonel Green. That's right. And uh, we found out that uh, Reed's grandfather had uh, worked for um, uh, Colonel Green. He was on that side of the battle. <laughs> so that was a dark secret in, in Reed's family. And uh, it ended up with, gosh, because it was the first part of a, what was going to be a trilogy. And it ended with. Uh, oh, we had him it? climbing on the outside of the ship. Yeah, right? he was. Oh, yeah, so we Trip was on the outside oh, of the, we, we the ship great, in a suit. Great techno thriller. And the ship was going to go to warp, <laughs> and they right. were they were going to keep reducing the warp bubble until he was spinned As, off. This is the way we wrote it. Right, yes. and we turned that into Manny. And Manny really, we, we did it all at the stand up oh, board, yeah, yeah. and he said, "Oh, and I love this, yeah. you know." And oh, right. then we then, wrote it, and what happened was. Yeah. Brandon said, and we take this as a point of pride, Brandon said, it was too dark. <laughs> and so, and then they had us in for the meeting to talk about the, the low budget. Can we have them infected or taken over and by that's, aliens? And that's when we did observe. Boy, I had forgotten yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds pretty neat. <laughs> so a little bit too much budget, so rain it back a bit. And yeah. yes. we got observer effect, which is a masterpiece still. <laughs> I really do love that. I really love observer effect. Like the tent, the idea of having that, that sentence that they kept saying, somebody always dies. Somebody always <laughs> dies. Like it just, it kept the tension up in the episode the whole time. We we so. really had fun writing that one. It was, it was so stylized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That we, that, that was fun. It was sort of yeah. a blend of the twilight zone and the original series. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Now, one of our listeners on Twitter, Brandon Harbecki, says, what was the experience like writing Quicksilver, and would you ever like to write another thriller in that vein? Oh, gosh, yes. Gosh. Yes. Quicksilver, um, well, we, well we, actually, we we went to the Pentagon, and yeah. uh, that we got shown around. Um, and they showed, they showed us the Star Trek room because they had oh, the right. Faraday cage, and they had the, the, the floor was pulled up. Mm -hmm. And they called it the Star Trek room in there. Right. What happened? We <laughs> Pentagon was undergoing renovation, yeah. Yeah. and so this we, is prior to nine eleven. Yeah, we turned in our um, camera, and we were taken around, and we were. And we had us. We had seven hours. We were in there. Yeah, but we were allowed into yeah. what was essentially the Air Force Command Room, yeah. which they called the Star Trek room because none of the uh, computers had been installed, but. Honest to gosh, it looked like it had been designed by Herman Zimmerman. And of course, Herman was involved. They did bring <laughs> yeah, Herman in right. to talk to talk about design there at right. the Pentagon. But also for us, the weird thing on that one was is right after that we had written that one and been published, and then we went to mm -hmm. Australia, uh, and we were uh, working on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, and we were uh, at Movie World in Queensland, mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. The day we arrived was what? I think it was like September 9th we arrived. Well, but, yeah. but it was the 10th there. Yeah. It was the 9th there, but we, mm. we had just arrived. 
and that morning Gar had uh, the computer on and there were this, these pictures mm -hmm. and we thought it was something for a movie and it was 9-11 mm -hmm. and, uh, and we knew where the Pentagon had been hit because we'd just been there yeah. oh, wow. and that, that was the strangest thing to know exactly which mm -hmm. locations mm -hmm. yeah but, but, but there it, uh, it was a fascinating writing process, and yeah. it was great because the Phil Strube, was who the, was the liaison for Hollywood, right? He yeah. was he was the guy whose the name you see in the end of all the movies where it's had Pentagon yeah. support, and uh, and then we ended up. It was great when the book came out. We actually were invited to sign it at the Pentagon Bookstore, uh, which is down below in the basement in the shopping arcade they have for mm -hmm. Pentagon employees. And then we also were invited to sign it at the Naval Academy um, during, uh, what was it, graduation week? Graduation week, that's so right. Their and, and of course, Heinlein had, had, done, signed, there had signed there too. Right. And, uh, but so, no, it was, yeah. it was... But that one came with, uh, Ice Fire was the prequel to that. Mm -hmm. And then there was Quicksilver and then there was Freefall. So we, right. did, we did a trilogy of Tatum Thrillers. Mm -hmm. And the uh, love to write. We there was another one we were thinking of, but you know, that we we have so many so many projects we'd like to write, and then they're the ones we have to write. So. That's right. Mm -hmm. But even the ones we have to write, we love. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Excellent. Um, now, Chris Trebuzio asks: Were there any storylines that you guys had developed for season four? that you decided to hold off for a potential season five that ended up kind of getting lost because of how the production schedule would have gone for season four. And then with it getting canceled in season four, they were never able to go back to them. Um, Other I, than Colonel Green. Yes. Yeah. Colonel Green. I don't know. Uh, there was, um, uh, da, 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 there was the floating city and he definitely wanted to go there. I'm trying to think were there other things left up on the board. There are probably a few. That's the city from the Cloud Miners from yes, season three. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Um, I, Manny I said a couple of things about season five. Uh, one of the things was he was he said we were all going to figure out a way to get Shran on the bridge of the Enterprise. Yeah, that would have been nice. So yeah. he would have been a, 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 regular, a regular or a more often recurring character. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, and also he wanted to reach out to science fiction novelists and uh, get them to write stories that then the the writing team would uh, turn into scripts for enterprise so it was sort of like those were kind of thoughts yeah. but nothing got got that developed because the the series being canceled that came fairly soon yeah yeah but if the and apparently if the C, if the series had been renewed then trip into poles baby uh would have lived oh wow <laughs> yeah. elizabeth maybe yeah, yeah. It, well that that was just thrown around, but but it, it yeah it, it hadn't really gone on. It, but you knew it was going to be big threads of of the Federation's biggest issues. That's what he would have gone into. Right. Oh wow, that's awesome. Yeah, we we've written some episodes that we you know we do a, a hypothetical season five here on the podcast, and every once in a while we write an episode. Very nice. <laughs> we wanna, as fans we always wanted to keep going on so <laughs> i love it now unfortunately my co-host patrick is not here today for these questions but my my buddy patrick he's a humongous disney fan ah. and you know we've heard that you guys have worked on disney shanghai and so we'd like to ask you ask about your involvement with that oh yes well we disney asia 
brought us in to work on Shanghai. And we were, and we, we were behind Adventure Isle, which is their adventure land. And I think the reason it was interesting, and they brought us in um, to inspire the because Adventure Isle from the beginning, it was going to be something that was not based on a Disney property. They wanted something original. And uh, so we were brought in and then we found out a couple of years later, what was so unusual about us being there was we were there through the entire, what they call the blue sky. Um, Which um, is, that's the beginning of the full concept uh, sessions. Right. Where, where the creative details are decided upon. And apparently they had writers in before on various projects but basically they come in for a week or something, or no, they come in for a couple of... writers would stay. Right, and we stayed there for yeah. a year and a half. And so we we blocked it out, but you know, it, it certainly when you go from Blue Sky to then Design Build, a lot starts to happen once the budget comes in. Yes. And mm -hmm. and there's just and entertainment and all the other divisions, yeah. landscape, etc. And it changes and evolves, and it was fascinating to see it. It was almost like being at Deep Space Nine, yes. seeing Deep Space Nine go in. This was... How, how theme park areas are done. And then they brought us back for a whole park concept for Disney Asia. And then just two years, just two mm. years ago, this October, they brought us back as lead writers for Epcot's re, uh, revitalization. For its 40th anniversary. Yeah, it'll uh, be in 20, 2022. 2022. And, uh, and to have us uh, conceptualize how you, would, how you would take what was there, build on the past, and extend into the future. And again, this is all a team effort. And, there's, and, there's, and when you're at yeah, the concept level, yeah. there will be the, the, the teams that continue through to actual execution. And But very heady stuff being in at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So like when you're brought in onto a project like this, working for a theme park ride, are you shown storyboards first and you build a story mm -hmm. around that? Or like... No, we're, we're, we're creating no, the story. We're creating the story. That the, then the, that that then will be translated into attractions and and the storyboards, and, and the storyboards, etc. What we're building mm -hmm. is the feeling and the experience that the guest will have going to this brand new land mm -hmm. or this brand new rethink. So you're right at the you're right at the conceptual stage. We're brought in by uh, a Disney director. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 process is was fascinating. Because it, to us, sort of thinking of the history of Disney, it was very much like the system uh, Walt Disney used to create his uh, the first animated um, shorts, where all the artists would be in the room and they would all contribute their story plot, their, their point, a bit of action, and it would go up in drawings on the wall. And you just keep going back over it and over it and over it until you got this coherent thread going through it. But what we did, for instance, for um, Adventure Isle, was we went in and the, the time and the place is very important and the, and the feeling of it. And what we did was we created documents and things that would spur thinking of that Mm -hmm. And so what we settled on was 1935. Well, that was at the beginning. At the very beginning, yeah. 1935, at the time of uh, kind of the age of explorers and and, uh, and expeditionary forces to unknown lands. Mm -hmm. And we, we created a, uh, 
1935 edition of, Sign, of, oh, National, of Geographic. National Geographic with all the illustrations and all the things that they might see going to Adventure Isle and made it as if it were real and it was in 1935 that you were seeing it. Cool. And that's that was how it started out. That's really interesting. It sounds like you guys are like never bored. Because you've always got something oh, no. different to work on, right? Oh, no. Right now, we've got what? We've got nine different development projects going through right now. Yeah. And while also Alien Stole My Body is being shot in Vancouver right now. That's three yeah. more days. Three more days of shooting. Yes. And so we're awesome. giving all the production rewrites as they think, oh, no, someone's sick. Oh, no, it's raining. Oh, no. And you have to, you have to adjust the script to match. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would you say your guys' your guys' key to success is like how do you get how are you even involved in so many different things? What do you think the attraction is to the Reeve Stevens that people are coming at you from all of these different angles to add your talent and your voice to their projects? Despair. Despair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know. And well, just like we just got involved in something really interesting just the last uh, couple of years. We we gave a talk. Oh yeah. uh, we gave a talk uh, for Digital Hollywood a couple of years ago, two years ago. Mm-hmm. And in the audience was a book editor who was putting together a giant handbook for uh, a nature publication uh, from Springer on transhumanism. And they got 70 different uh, contributors. And we're the only science fiction one. And the science, it is the, the, the transhumanism handbook. And we'll be giving a talk on that. It pub date is the 15th of this month. Right. And on the 24th, we'll be in LA and we'll be giving a presentation. And since we're the only sci-fi people that were, that were in it, ours, ours starts with what's the worst that can happen? What science fiction can tell us about yes. artificial intelligence? What could possibly <laughs> go wrong? <laughs> mm-hmm. but it, um... And that's just another... These, these things happen to science fiction writers. Yep. I don't but think also, that. you know, there's a there's a, a rule of success that William Shatner <laughs> is also uh, promulgates or it says it says always say yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know, so when somebody comes up and says you want to contribute a chapter to transhumanism, you have to look up what transhumanism means. We would, and we would always, always say yes, we would sure. Say yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And it's like, well, yes, we would. Success for actors, yeah. we've heard, is you know, if the if the uh, casting agent says, "Can you ride, uh, a ride a horse?" You say yes, and then because you go you, take those you lessons. You know, you will by the time you have to do it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We've we've been fortunate enough to be involved in all sorts of projects, but the one thing unites them is all science fiction. Genre, uh, yeah. It's genre, genre yeah. whether or not it's historical mm-hmm. or near future contemporary, near future, or mm-hmm. uh, far future. Um, I mean, because that's how we ended up uh, writing a book with the chief engineer of, of NASA. Or JPL. Uh, on, and, or excuse me, of JPL mm-hmm. with on going to Mars and writing a four-hour uh, four uh, uh, miniseries on that too, mm-hmm. Race to Mars. Well, and that, that all came about from uh, Star Trek because, yes, because what happened was when they were shooting, I guess, Next Generation, in the final year, um, they had a contingent of folks from JPL come out to the set, and Brian Muirhead was, was one of the engineers. Engineer. Yeah. Uh, he phoned up um, Rick, Berman. Rick Berman, you know, the year later, and said, "Listen, 
the Mars, he, he had been the project director uh, for um, the Pathfinder rover, the first they, one on they Mars. they wanted to tell the story of the people who had put Pathfinder on Mars. And, and Brian asked Rick if, you know, he knew a Star Trek writer on staff who could help him write that book. I said, well, I think you should meet the Reeve Stevens. Yeah, so he put us together, and so... And then when we did that one episode for Enterprise, mm -hmm. where we showed Mars, oh, yes. we had we had the chief engineer come out, Brian come out, and he, he said, you'll never put your foot on the actual Mars, but you can you can come out and look at, at, at our set. And then he stepped on the green screen. And got yelled at from across at. the set. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And he also twiddled the dials in the oh, in Trip's yes, engine room. In Trip's engine room, and we said, "No, no, no, you don't touch them." <laughs> that was fun. But then, and then at JPL, um, when we started hanging out there to write the book uh, about going, going to, to Mars, Mars, that's where you know one of their top people said, "Oh, Icefire, love that book. You know, it's the first one, first techno thriller that got the satellites right." Oh. And mm -hmm. so they just but all these things intersect. They all intersect. Yeah. No. Pays to do your research. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so can you guys ride a sailot? Yes, we can. When do you need us to do <laughs> that? Do need us. <laughs> right. But of course. Yeah. But of course. Awesome. Um, okay, so wrapping up, guys, can you let the listeners know uh, where they can find you online? Um, can you tell us about your latest novel, Wraith? And then you've talked a lot about, you know, the, the aliens are coming. Uh, I can't remember the title. The first one was Aliens Ate My Homework. Yes. Uh, you talked a little about that. But what else, what other projects are on the horizon that people should be looking out for? Officially, <laughs> Beyond Aliens Stole My Body, yes. which is number two yeah. in that series. Aliens Ate My Homework came out last year. Netflix, yeah. most places. Yeah. But it's on DVD and streaming services. Uh, Aliens Stole My Body, I think, comes out. Will be next year. Next spring. Next spring. Um, the transhumanism book, which is utterly fascinating, yes. 863 pages. We're digging our way through it. Uh, transhumanism, of course, is about all the ways we can prolong human life, uh, become faster, smarter, uh, survive in space without spacesuits, things like that. It's it's incredible and stuff. And for Wraith, there are podcasts that we did that uh, mm -hmm. that are online or, or no those were the book commercials the book commercial, yeah. but, but they were online yes. yes and and we have virtually no online presence simply because it started eating up too much, too much time. time unfortunately so uh i know we are going to be tweeting again soon because we have the transhumanism book coming out and um and we, we expect to have projects that, that might become official soon just on just okay. on this past friday you know, the producers we've been talking back and forth with over the entire summer finally said, well, give us your agent's contact number. So that usually means there's something going on. That's right. And, uh, and then we have, you know, pilot scripts, score, and all sorts of things. <laughs> and we'll be delighted with any of them going yeah, forward. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, I believe it's just Reed Stevens. Yes, nothing fancy. Nothing fancy thank you guys so very much it's, it's been an honor talking with you guys oh. i mean the 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 books really truly were a humongous part of my star trek fandom they got me through the fallow years between the end of enterprise and the return of discovery like the books were there for me when <laughs> the tv show wasn't like that's there's so much there there's so much great stuff and you know you guys have written some truly excellent novels i really do love the the shatner verses that's kind of come to been known uh in fandom i think those are some really really fun books and you guys play with a lot of really creative ideas in there. And, um, you know, you, 
if you haven't picked up a book by these guys, you should. Prime Directive is one of the greatest. So, you know, I, I thank you guys for your contribution to Star Trek. And uh, hopefully with so much Star Trek coming, you might be able to contribute again. I mean, we've got the animated, two yeah. animated shows coming, Section yeah. 31, the Picard yeah. show. There's so much on the horizon right now. It is Well, we were amazing. honored to be a part of it. And thank you so and, much for the question that made us remember about the Colonel Green. Yes, We'll have yes. to find that outline. That's right. That, that put us back, too. Too dark for Excellent. Brandon Barga. <laughs> Excellent. Too dark for Brandon. That was Justin. Justin is my co-host over. We're doing a, the Star Trek Picard podcast, and he, he is one of my co-hosts on the Picard podcast that's coming. So, uh, <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. It was a pleasure. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. Okay, that's excellent. And it'll be interesting to see how we interpreted the topic because I know I may have interpreted it uh, maybe a little differently than others did. We'll see. Is this another time travel thing? No, I was, I was going to say no time travel for me as long as Jellicoe doesn't come into this. Sure. Okay, that's, so we'll make okay. that deal then. Awesome. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Literary Treks. And, you know, the, the stakes are, are really big. You know, we'll, we'll get there, but, you know, this Borg ship threatens Earth and all this kind of stuff. And it just feels like it, it's, it's a lot of really comic booky, over-the-top stuff that doesn't quite fit right with the novel that came before it and the novel that came after it, if that makes sense. <laughs> Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. And Next Gen Arriving was, was this sort of, wow, wow, this is, looks incredible. I know when we look at sort of first season Next Gen now, what we're going is, wow, this is really slow and stagey. But in fact, it was, it was incredible. It was absolutely um, game-changing. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Only because I was watching little bits of Emissary recently is that he would see himself wearing that awful purple swimsuit and think, oh, God, I can't wear that. <laughs> oh, my every, gosh. Every time I see it, I'm like, whoa, I'm really glad I'm not wearing 24th century clothing. <laughs> if you wanted me to murder an entire society, fine. <laughs> but I'm not wearing that bathing suit. Too revealing. Oh. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> that's funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button at Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. I'd like to thank very much. Uh, I'd like to send a very special thank you to our friends over at the Spocklight podcast who put us in touch with Judith and Garfield Reeves-Stevens so that we were able to do this interview. Thank you so much uh, to the hosts of the Spocklight podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. 
You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Patrick can be found on Twitter at MagicDrop5, and you can find him every other week here on the network with a show called The Edge with his friend Amy, where they talk Star Trek Discovery. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella, and you can find me over on a couple of other podcasts. One is called The Line here on Trek FM, which is all about Star Trek Picard, and I host that with my friends Justin and Chrissy. And over on the Fandom Podcast Network, my friends Chris and Tom, we host a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. And over there we discuss all of Hitchcock's films uh, chronologically, one at a time. We go through them all. And last, you can also find me and my friend Zach with a show called Franchise Fatigue over on the United Federation of Podcast Network. Uh, on that show we cover movies, sequels, and remakes. Um, yes, excellent. Uh, if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, to host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Well, that's all we got for you this week, so stay tuned next week as Patrick and I uh, treat you with another episode of Warp 5. Warp 5.